My father was 26 years old. He was single and uh, in a day when most people were married in their early 20s. He thought at that point that he might be a lifelong bachelor. When his teenage brother made a suggestion, my Uncle John said, if you want to aim above your station, maybe you ought to consider Charlotte. Now, my dad, a shy man, did something very uncharacteristic, and he asked my mother out on a date. There's a lot more to the story. They knew each other since they were maybe two or three. Um, but the basic outline of the story remains intact, that my dad, on the verge of bachelorhood, had his horizons expanded by his 17-year-old brother. Six weeks after my parents went out on their first date, my dad proposed to my mom. My mom made him wait four agonizing weeks. Then she said yes, and they were married 60 years ago. Now, our topic today isn't marriage, but St. Paul wrote something famous when he, too, tried to expand the horizons of some people he was writing to. Don't, in essence, he said, underestimate the great things God can do in and through you. And that's where we're going to end up today, but how I want us to start as well. Last week, as uh, Devin uh, taught us last week and Kara mentioned, we began a new series on the New Testament book of Ephesians. As Devin shared last week, this book was probably written to a region of the world, not just to Ephesus. In fact, some of the early manuscripts don't even include the word Ephesus. So likely it was written with a fill-in-the-blank, Ephesus and other cities along with that, that got this letter. It's a sort of sermon written to summarize some of the key ideas that Paul thought were important for these people to understand. Now, what he does here is he takes up a number of themes that he also addresses elsewhere in letters that have, been, have survived to us today. So Ephesians is sort of a cliff notes of some of these other themes. So what makes Ephesians useful for us to study is in a very brief number of weeks, we're going to be able to cover a lot of ground. Last week, Devin kicked things off by talking about the amazing things that God had done for us in Jesus Christ. Paul calls this grace. Grace is undeserved gift given by an unobligated giver. So as Devin said last week, we don't need to live in despair or shame because of what Christ did for us when he died on the cross. He even goes so far as to say that God chose us. That's a code word. Chose us, for those who were Jewish, they would say, sure, we know that. God has chosen us, his chosen people. But Paul was writing to a mixed audience, to people who were Jews and who were Greeks. Probably more Greeks than Jews read this letter. So this word would have been a little bit strange. But what he's saying here is that God chose everyone, not just the Jews, but Gentiles as well. It's radical stuff. In fact, next week we're going to talk about one of the implications of all of that. And then Devin told us that not only did Jesus choose us and save us, he gave us some important things to do. At the end of chapter 2, he talked about how we've been given good works to do. That is, we're not just to have faith be something that remains in our heads, but it also has to be lived out in our lives by doing good, not to placate an angry God, but out of expression of love and gratefulness for what God has done for us. Now, all that brings us to this week, and we're going to go look at two sections of Ephesians that Michael has read for us this morning. And the first immediately follows and precedes the two sections that Devin talked about last week. It's kind of sandwiched in between them. And it's here that Paul stops and, frankly, kind of goes off. What he says takes the form of a prayer, sort of, because he doesn't actually pray. What he does is say what he would pray for them when he prays. And then what he does here is memorably, you've already heard the words, they kind of tumble out on top of each other, building to a climax. Now then, after the part that Devin talked about in chapter 2, where Paul explains the idea of grace, he takes on some other topics, and then at the end of chapter 3, he kind of can't help himself again, and he prays again 
with some incredible words that crescendo um, into something that's very memorable and exciting. We'll get to that toward the end of today. Now, these two sections, the end of chapter one and the end of chapter three, are jam-packed with some interesting insights into the benefits that come to us as a result of having a relationship with Jesus. And the first, I would summarize with the word wisdom. In chapter one, verses 15 and 16, I'm just going to paraphrase it in my own words. What uh, Paul does is he kind of gives an attaboy. He says, listen, I've heard about your faith and your love for one another. So I'm thankful for you, and I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And then he gives them a specific about how he's praying for them in verse 17. And really what he's praying for is what he calls wisdom. Let me read verse 17 again. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. The spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. What Paul is saying here is not just that they know facts about God, but that they know God in a personal way. It's not the sort of knowledge you can get from books, at least not exclusively. It has to be revealed by the Holy Spirit and experienced. Now, this is uh, this word, in the, this phrase, enlightened, or uh, that you know him better, give you a spirit of wisdom to know him better, uh, related to something that Jews who were hearing this maybe would have recognized, and that is some of their written prayers outside of the writings of the Bible um, were, asked that it were ones in which they asked God to give them enlightened eyes in order to know spiritual realities better. So as much as they needed information, they needed their eyes to be enlightened. That is, their vision, their wisdom to be enlightened. And what Paul says, that's something that the Holy Spirit does for us. And then he gets more specific about what he wants them to understand in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order to know the hope. I was talking with somebody this week about how tricky it can be sometimes to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. Actually, most of the time, it's fairly straightforward, kind of like Google Translate. You can translate the word directly from one language into another because there's a corresponding word. But every once in a while, there is a, section, there's a word where the words don't they have, may have an overlapping meaning, but not a direct um, uh, meaning. And so there's one of those here where Paul talks about the idea that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That word heart, when we hear heart, we think of emotion. We think of passion. But that's not exactly what the early readers of this letter would have thought. Because in the ancient world, the heart was considered the seat of both thought and emotion. So in other words, we think we think with our heads and we feel with our hearts. They thought and felt with their hearts. So Paul wanted them to know that he wants them to understand God intellectually and emotionally, that a personal relationship with God comes in those two ways. It's something that Devin summarized last week when he read from chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works. But this is something we need to understand both intellectually and emotionally as well. So the first theme that Paul takes up is wisdom. It's to know God with our heart and our heads. And then we come to the second theme. Now, I'm going to take things out of order from the graphic on the front of your program. It says wisdom, love, and power. I'm actually going to take power second. So those of you who are a little bit anal, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, just, I'm going to do it out of order. Probably should have listed them that way in the first place. But in verse 18, Paul prays that the Spirit would help them understand the hope that they have in Christ, both now and for eternity. And then in verse 19, he continues and adds this. And it's his incomparably great power 
for us who believe. Now, I don't want to read the next few verses. I'm going to put them on the screen, but let me just describe a little bit of what's going on here because Paul is saying that Jesus was raised from the dead and put above all things. And the result is this jumble of words where Paul piles on synonym after synonym, example after example, to impress us with the idea that Jesus is above all things, literally everything. Human and spiritual powers, he's above them all. Different levels of authority, Jesus has the highest rank. There's nothing greater than Jesus, both now and forever. One day, everything and everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is the supreme authority over all things. And then at the very end, he mentions the church. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that Jesus is described as the the head of the church. But in a list that builds to a crescendo, to a climax, it seems a little strange, at least to first to me, to see the church be the last thing in the list. We don't typically think of the church as powerful, do we? We think about many modern institutions, like our government or the United States military, as powerful. We think of successful businesses as powerful. Just this week, Apple Computer released its quarterly earnings, and its stock jumped, bringing bringing, um, Apple's market capitalization to almost a trillion dollars. That is more than the GDP of all but about 15 or 16 nations on Earth. Even influential educational institutions seem more powerful than the church. Harvard University has an endowment of $35 billion. That's more than the market capitalization of 95 nations in the world. That's half the nations on Earth. Now, there were powerful institutions in Paul's day as well. Powerful institutions, one you could argue, was even more powerful than anything we have today, and that's the Roman Empire, which controlled vast quantities, vast stretches of the, of the known world. But Paul believed there was one institution that was more powerful than all of them, and that was the church, and Jesus was the head of it. Now, he finishes that section by saying that Jesus fills everything. That means he completely fills the universe which reminded me of the words of David in Psalm 139, where he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. So he talks about wisdom and power, and then there's love. Now, for this, I want to skip to chapter 3. And again, Michael read this for us as well. If wisdom is knowing God with our hearts and our heads, then it's not surprising, he says, he suggests that we need to grow in our love for God, and at least our understanding of God. So in chapter 3, he begins this prayer um, with a power theme, asking God to strengthen them with power in their inner being. Their inner being, he means the core uh, values and character at the center of our lives. And then he says that it ought to dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, what Paul is talking about here is that there's an inner us and an outer us. They're not divisible. They're not, sometimes the ancient Greeks thought of the body as sort of a suitcase for the soul. It's more integrated than that. But still what he's saying is that we are transformed from the inside, and that ends up resulting in what our lives look like on the outside. So I want to try at this point to put all of these things together, wisdom, power, and love, and understand here, first of all, that God wants us to know him with our minds and our hearts, not just facts, then that this power that can change our lives, and by that, he really means that there is power to change. One of the things that's most difficult for almost all of us, I would say all of us, is to change. 
Personal change is always hard. Now, I'm not gonna do this, but if we were to take a few minutes and just allow you a little time to write on a piece of paper the two or three things that you're really struggling with, things that you believe, if you were to change them, would change your lives. And I'm not talking about little things. I'm talking about big things. We'd all have a list of maybe two, three, or five things that we know we need to change. And if those things changed, we'd be different people. Maybe it'd be that we wouldn't be so anxious or so greedy, never satisfied that what we have is enough, or so full of anger at someone who hurt us, maybe even years ago, that we can't let it go, or addicted to alcohol or some other substance, or unable to stop looking at pornography, or struggling with the will to fight for a marriage we know we need to fight for. We know we need power. That's why in verse 16, Paul helpfully reminds us that out of his glorious riches, he will strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. So he reminds us that we have that power available. But in chapter three, he reminds us that there is almost an important part of the equation. And that's where we get back to this idea of love. Verses 17, end of 17 through 19, he says this, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The truth is, is that the reason we often don't experience the kind of change that we're desperate for is not because we haven't tried hard enough, although we could always try a bit harder. And it isn't because we haven't fully tapped into the power that Jesus tells us is ours, although that would help. The bigger issue is a heart issue. Do we really understand how much Jesus loves us? Because if we did, we'd be able to say, I don't care about the things that I used to care about. I'm able to be content or to give up anger or to find freedom in whatever it is that has trapped me. Paul tells them that he's praying that the inner self would be strengthened by the Spirit so that they would be able to understand how much Jesus loves them. Because if we understand how much Jesus loves us, we'll be able to give up some of the things that have trapped us, some of the things that have controlled us. We'll be able to be content because we'll understand that Jesus is more precious than anything else. We will be able to change because we know that the love that Jesus has for each one of us can change us. And that's what Paul prays for them and he prays for us. And so my prayer is that we would all learn to love Jesus even more, that we would fall in love with him, that we'd understand to the core of our being, both intellectually and emotionally, that Jesus loves us more than anyone else, more than a husband or a wife, a parent or a child or a best friend, that he loves us so much that he gave his son Jesus for us. Paul said that God did this for us even though we are still sinners. This says this in Romans. He says, we don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to take steps toward God first. He takes an initiative with us before we take a single step toward him. God watched as his son Jesus sacrificially gave himself on the cross for us. Jesus loved us enough to go to the cross, not because he got caught up in some conspiracy and he couldn't prevent it. He had choices along the way, but he willingly submitted to the plans that the authorities had for him because he knew that it was through that that he would be able to offer us forgiveness and a relationship with God. And Jesus didn't stay dead. That's where the incredible power of God raised him from the dead so that we might be reconciled to God. Why? Because of his great love for us. And all we can say to that is, what an amazing God. 
Now, I know that some of you are exploring faith, maybe for the first time. And sometimes it can take a while for these ideas to make sense. But my prayer is that you would one day understand the height and breadth and width and depth of God's love for you. And that you would understand it sooner versus later. And when you do, when you see how much Jesus loves you, no matter who you are or what you've done, I hope that you will put your full trust in him and find the hope that he offers you in Jesus. That you'll experience the great power that comes because of that love to change us from the inside. Now, what we've talked about so far isn't the end of what Paul has to say because at the end of chapter three, he has two verses that cap off everything else he's said. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that it is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. And then he says, amen, or so be it. Now there is a danger in taking these words out of context. They're words that if taken alone without being balanced by other insights we find in the Bible would turn God into some kind of celestial slot machine. But at the same time, it would be easy to make so many qualifications that we would strip Paul's words of their plain meaning and power. It seems that Paul is making it clear that God is a God of wisdom, power, and love, a God who's trying to expand our imaginations. It seems that no matter how big our dreams might be, no matter how bold we might be with God, it's impossible for us to ask God for too much. So a little bit like my Uncle John expanding my dad's vision for reality, God is trying to expand our vision, our capacity to understand and dream far beyond what we might even ask or imagine. And when his power is at work in us, that's not our natural power, but his power, we can do remarkable things. And sure, Paul qualifies it at the end by saying that these need to be things that bring God glory, not something that makes us look good or satisfies our worldly ambition. But God wants us, or Paul wants us to know that God answers prayer, that there's no limit to what he can do. So he says, now to him, that's to God, who is able to do, this is not an idle or an active God, immeasurably more, a generous God, more than a God who sometimes has bigger dreams for us than we do for ourselves. All we ask, a God who hears and answers our prayers or imagines, a God who knows our minds and hearts and sometimes imagines and has dreams for us that we haven't even thought about. According to his power that is at work within us, that God is all-powerful, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's tempting for us to see the story of Jesus as just one more story. But Paul saw this as the story of all stories. He wanted them to see the implications of the story in their lives, for their lives. That in Jesus we have wisdom, power, and love. And these realities should make us bold in asking God to work in and through us in imaginative ways for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would grant all of us here today wisdom, not just the head knowledge to know facts about you, but to know you in a personal way, both our hearts and our heads. And Father, grant us an experience of your power in our lives. May the same power that raised Jesus from the dead be available to us to change us from what we are to what you want us to be. But most of all, Father, give us an experience of your love. May we, as we grasp in deeper and deeper ways how much you love us, experience the transformation that allows us to loosen our grip on the things of this world and tighten our grip on you. And make us bold when we pray, understanding your dreams for us that may exceed anything we have for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.